welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm your host for this show. Today is January 15th, and we're going to look at Genesis 15. As a reminder, every day I uh, take us through a chapter of the Word of God, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas and themes and, and even the theology very briefly. Uh, my goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day, and sometimes we make it to 20 minutes, and sometimes we don't, and sometimes I go well past uh, 20 minutes. Sorry about that. But either way, today we're going to look at Genesis 15. So here is Genesis 15, the reading of God's Word. And it Genesis 15 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess it. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And, and then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Catamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Well, in Genesis 15, 1 through 21, what we discover is God's covenant with Abram. And this chapter falls into two closely related sections in verses 1 through 6, which address Abram's concern that he is still childless. And in verses 7 through 21, it focuses on Abram's desire to have a divine pledge that the land of Canaan will belong to his descendants. 
Now, both elements are essential components of nationhood. God's unconditional promise in 12.2 that Abram will become a great nation is now guaranteed by a covenant, although the fulfillment will not take place until several centuries after Abram's death. Now, in verses 1 through 6, Abram receives a sign from God that he will have many descendants. Verse 1. It says, after these things, and this links this episode to the one immediately preceding it. In chapter 14, Abram rejected the offer from the king of Sodom for the victory spoils as a reward. And in response, God now states that Abram's reward shall be very great. And by rejecting the use of human wealth to achieve greatness in Genesis 14, 22 through 24, Abram demonstrates his willingness to wait for God to provide. In a vision, although this is not certain, the initial vision may have taken place at night. And the reason I say that is in Genesis 15:5, God brings Abram out of his tent to count the stars. And in verse 2, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. The individual whose name means God is help is not named elsewhere. And yet the context suggests that he is a trusted member of Abraham's household, possibly a slave who came from Damascus. In 15.6, we have a key verse in Genesis. This key verse is used four times in the New Testament. In Romans 4.3, in Romans 4.22, in Galatians 3.6, and James 2.23. That is to say, faith in God is something that everyone in Scripture was expected to exercise. And it entails trust in or confident reliance on God based on the truthfulness of his words that will lead to obeying the commands of God. So a person's faith or lack of it it is most apparent in crises such as the one Abram is facing. He believed God would give him a son despite many years of childlessness. Now the phrase counted as righteousness. Righteousness is the fundamental Old Testament virtue that characterized by a godly life lived in conformity with the law of God. It is the righteous who enjoy the favor of God. And here the narrator, Moses, underlines the significance of faith in that before Abraham has proved himself righteous by his deed, he is counted, that is, regarded as righteous because of his faith. Now, in verses 9 through 17, the ritual described here is possibly a type of oath that involves a self-cure if not fulfilled. God will become like the dead animals if he doesn't, cut, if he doesn't keep his word. Another way to say this or see this is that the ritual is an acted sign in which the sacrificial animals symbolize Abram's descendants, which are all of Israel, the birds of the prey. In verse 11, they signify the enemies, which is the unclean nations and the fire pit and the torch in verse 17 represents the presence of God. So the promises in verses 13 through 16, they look forward to God's being in the midst of the Israelites after they come out of Egypt. Verses 13 through 16, 400 years, it's probably best to be understood as a round figure. This anticipated the length of the Israelites' oppression by the Egyptian before the exodus from Egypt. And afterward, they shall come out with a great possessions. The, this promise given by the Lord to Abraham, soon to be called Abraham in Genesis 17, 5, was fulfilled 600 to 800 years later at the time of the exodus in Exodus 12, 35 through 36. 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites are one of the main population groups in Canaan and are frequently listed alongside the Canaanites and others. And God's comment, it implies that the Amorites will be dispossessed of their land as an act of divine punishment. And at their time, their accumulated iniquity will be so great that God will no longer tolerate their presence in the land. Now, in 1517, when the sun had gone down, the final part of the ritual occurs after sunset. And since verses 1 through 6 assume a nighttime setting, as I talked about earlier, Abram may have been sp- have spent much of the day preparing the animals a smoking fire put and a flaming torch. These are to be taken as symbolic of the presence of God, which is often associated with fire, like in Exodus 13, 21 through 22. In verses 18 through 21, what we see is these verses, they provide a brief summary affirming the significance of what has taken place by stating that on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And this covenant, which differs from the covenant described in chapter 17, is introduced using a Hebrew idiom that means to cut a covenant. God's unconditionally pledges that Abraham's offspring will possess this land. The reference is both offspring and land links this covenant with the earliest conditional promise that Abraham would be a great nation in Genesis 12 too. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And while the location of the northern boundary is clear, the designation river of Egypt is somewhat ambiguous. It could refer to Wadi El Arash, midway between Israel and the Nile. And yet in Numbers 34.5, it uses a slightly different expression for this. Alternatively, river could refer to the eastern branch of the Nile, and yet the distinctive Hebrew term for the Nile is not used here in this passage. And while others occupied the land when the divine covenant was given, this promise was probably fulfilled most likely in the reign of Solomon per 1 Kings 4.21. So the biblical reformational principle that we are justified, that is declared righteous, is based on the perfect obedience of Christ, which is received through faith alone, that is sola fide. Regrettably, misunderstandings about faith abound in our culture, right? For many people, faith is merely a nebulous belief that everything is going to be okay, it'll all be okay. And yet that faith lacks an object and is often reduced to a bumper sticker slogan that commands us, have faith. That is a secular understanding of faith. But there is also confusion about faith in the Christian community. Too many professing Christians think faith is opposed to reason. That is fundamentally irrational. That is not based on any real evidence. And yet the Lord never places faith and reason in opposition. God does not call us to a blind trust or to leap into utter darkness. There is content that we must have to have biblical faith. And there are evidences to which we can point to that make faith in our creator a reasonable enterprise. Now, we place our faith in God because he's trustworthy and because he has proved himself in many ways. Blind faith, we must say, is superstition. It is trust in something when there is no substantial reason to believe that something is trustworthy. And yet, the the God revealed in Scripture gives us reasons to believe that he can be trusted both in nature and the course of the history of redemption. And one of the most significant evidences from the redemptive history for the trustworthiness of God is found in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and was justified, Genesis 15, 1-6 tells us. And But when the patriarch asked God for evidence that his promise would come true, God in his mercy gave it to him. 
He passed between the pieces of the animals, pledging to forfeit his own life if he should fail to give Abraham and Sarah an heir in verses 7 through 21 of this chapter. And the surety of this evidence is seen in that God, because he is God, cannot die. And since the curse of death cannot uh, fall upon him, the only option left to him is to keep his promise to Abraham. And God must be true to his promise. And the only rational response to that truth is to believe the Lord. Now, God has two choices. He can keep his promise or he can die. But since he's God, in fact, he cannot die because of his very nature. And so there's only one real option left to him when he makes a covenant, that is to keep his promise. And because of who he is, the Lord is, I mean, there is no way that he can fail to keep his oaths. And so that means that we can trust God because his very nature precludes him from breaking his promise. Now, Genesis 15, it records the repetition of the Lord's promise to Abraham, who was later renamed Abraham, sometime after it was first delivered in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Abraham found it difficult to see how the Lord would keep his promises, and although Abraham truly believed God when he pledged to make the patriarch a great nation in Genesis 15, 1 through 6, Abraham's faith was not perfected and needed assurance, and thus Abraham asked for a sign to prove he would inherit the land in verses 7 through 8. Well, remarkably, the Lord did not condemn Abraham's weak faith, but he did condescend to his servants' weaknesses to give some tangible confirmation. Such is the grace of our Creator. Now, to understand the sign that God gave to Abraham, we must know something about the covenant-making process in the ancient Near East. To translate the Hebrew phrase that refers to the enactment of a covenant, most literally we would say, cut a covenant. Covenants were cut between two parties in that culture. And part of the reason for that is the self-maledictory oath vowing harm to oneself that people made to confirm their commitment to the covenant stipulations. And often the parties would cut up animals, just as Abraham did in our text, and, and lay them next to each other with a path in between. And normally the two parties would walk between the pieces as they commit to the covenant, with the implicit warning being a failure to keep the promise would bring the same fate upon the promise breaker as was brought upon the animals. And here, only God passes between the animal pieces in verses 9 through 21. The Lord takes it upon himself alone to accomplish his word and vows to be destroyed should he not keep it in Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. And the importance of this is plain. So we're going to paraphrase what R.C. Sproul said of what God said to Abraham in this ritual. He said, R.C. Sproul says this, Abraham, I'm putting my very deity on the line here. I'm swearing to you by my holy nature. If I don't keep this word, I will no longer be God. And God made a covenant with Abraham and he made a promise and he backs up that promise, which is not just to Abraham, but to all of God's people. He made a promise and that he seals that promise with an oath based upon his own nature. There is no conceivably higher guarantee than that. Now, God cannot cease to be God. And thus, there is zero chance that the Lord will fail to keep his promise to Abraham. And as we look out at history, we see that our creator is keeping his pledge to the patriarch. Abraham has many descendants of faith, men and women who trust in his greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite its imperfections, the church universal proves that God is fulfilling his promise and will keep every single one that he has made to his people. 
And in the midst of God's reaffirmation of his promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, Moses pauses the storyline and introduces one of the most important theological comments we find in sacred scripture. Perhaps more than any other single verse in the Old Testament, what we see in Genesis 15:6 it explains how the unrighteous can hope to stand before a holy God. Now, so much has been said on this verse alone, we could camp on it for a long, long time, both in the New Testament and beyond. And space and time prohibit us today from doing more than just pointing out a few more highlights of it. Now, we're going to pick up the themes, we'll say, as we explore uh, the book of Romans when we get to that and when we get to the New Testament. Now, Abram makes no immediate response to God's commitment to give him many descendants. And this is telling. In fact, his silence is deafening. Unless we miss the point, Moses writes that Abraham believed the Lord in verse 6. The patriarch has nothing left to say because he has placed his trust in the Almighty's word. The, the faith that Abraham displayed is, as we've talked about today, trust in the Creator's word because the response comes after a divine promise is offered. He believes in a proposition, and yet not only a proposition, but a person as well, for it is the Lord in whom he trusts. The Hebrew word for believe, it conveys a sense of regarding something as dependable. And so we see faith involves trusting in God to act reliably in accordance with his character and with his promise. Faith is not only an intellectual assent to propositions, it is reliance on a person. And this reliance must issue forth in works of heartfelt obedience. Otherwise, we do not trust in the Lord as James 2, 14 through 16 talks about. And because the patriarch believed, he was counted righteous, verse 6 of Genesis 15 says. You see, despite Aram's transgressions, the Lord saw him, legally speaking, as having fulfilled all the obligations placed upon him and therefore faithful to his covenant. According to John Calvin's commentary, those to whom God imputes righteousness are approved by him as just persons, that is, persons who are in a right standing with himself. Now, we're going to talk about this, all of this more in due time. And yet, as we wrap up today's episode, let me say a few more things. How have you personally responded to the promises God offers to you in his word? Do you yourself stand as Abraham did with humility and lean on the Lord and his promises? Have you obeyed the Lord today? Has you has has your professed trust issued forth in love of God and your neighbor? Or have you ignored the opportunities around you? If you have faith in Christ, you are counted righteous and have free access to his presence on account of the perfect righteousness of Christ alone. So, dear Christians, show forth your faith and lovingly serve another person today. I want to thank you for listening or watching the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.